Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Fort Pitt, A Frontier History, Brady Kreitzer. Brady Kreitzer, author of Fort Pitt, A Frontier History. If someone would, who has never been to Fort Pitt, the site of Fort Pitt, would go there today, what would they see? Uh, Fort Pitt's a little bit unusual, I think, in, in the sort of context of history. And in Pennsylvania, we have a good sense of this. Uh, if you go to a place like Gettysburg, uh, you can stand on the battlefield. It's relatively undeveloped. Uh, you can really feel a sense of it, I think. You can really get a, get a mood for the event. Fort Pitt's a little bit different, Lou. Um, in the regard that the city of Pittsburgh is a backdrop that was never there when Fort Pitt was there. But uh, the site is still relatively intact. Point State Park is sort of a green kind of space. Uh, you can get a sense of the land, you can hear some of the stories involved. Uh, but the fact that the fort's gone has sort of made a really sort of large cognitive dissonance between the people and the event. And if there was something there, uh, more concrete that they could see, aside from the actual concrete border that's left, I think it would make a connection a lot more. Uh, a lot of that was sort of the thought processes going into this book. How can you bridge that gap to a really, a th and as far as a, an institution, right, something like the Fort Pitt Museum or something like Fort Pitt in general, uh, people can recognize, but often with, with no background to work on. Is there anything to be gained uh, to get an idea of what it was like there by standing at the point now? Absolutely. The geography of Fort Pitt, in my mind, is one of the few places in this country where you could still get an almost absolute sense of it. Uh, maybe the Little Bighorn Battlefield, uh, Gettysburg certainly. Uh, Fort Pitt uh, is often overlooked. You can uh, see the confluence of the Allegheny and the Monongahela to form the Ohio. And in many ways that was the precursor for a, as Winston Churchill said, uh, a, a world war that was the Seven Years War. So you can uh, see the, uh, the layout of the land, the geomorphology of the area of western Pennsylvania still very much intact. The only thing missing is the fort. So uh, that's something that hopefully this fort kind of, or this book I should say, kind of fills in the, the need for. Now there is a blockhouse there. Correct. What, what, is that original? The blockhouse is the only original structure really left from Fort Pitt. And when you consider it has a history in its own right, it's actually pretty spectacular. Uh, a blockhouse very simply is a miniature fort. So outside of Fort Pitt, which was a massive structure, uh, you'd have small incremental blockhouses. Uh, each one would have you know, men going into it if they were caught off guard from outside the fort, something like that. But there would be regularly people going through it. Uh, it's actually, some say, the oldest building uh, to the west of the Allegheny Mountains in the country because of that. Uh, but that would have been at the far western edge of Fort Pitt. And it is an original building. Now, after the colonial period, uh, as Pittsburgh's developing, uh, it's still a standing structure even when Fort Pitt isn't necessarily uh, needed as much anymore. So people turn into a farmhouse and then it becomes uh, a storage sort of shed effectively for uh, hay and livestock. Uh, so through the Daughters of the American Revolution, and I would say in about the 1940s and 50s, 
uh, they really began restoring that. And now you have this really incredible treasure of the colonial period. Uh, and you can still see uh, the sort of subtle nuances of it, right? What it would have been used for. And it, it, it really is the last vestige of Fort Pitt, but it would have sat well outside Fort Pitt. So uh, you still have your sort of imagination to rely on for that. If you were at Fort Pitt around the time it was being built, first of all, when was that? And what would it have been like? Fort Pitt uh, was founded, uh, the idea conceptually, in 1758. Uh, I think to get a good sense of it, you have to have a better idea of the period as a whole as what Fort Pitt meant, uh, and understand it was a completely British situation, right? Uh, the Seven Years' War is going on. It's this major war between the British and French, uh, natural and perpetual enemies, as they say, and it's really to determine the fate of empire. Uh, the battleground is on five separate continents, North America being maybe one of the most impressive and certainly one of the most essential. Uh, and from 1756 all the way to 1758, and you can even take that back to 1754, uh, the British have not been doing well. Uh, for the British people living here in America, for the way of life that they know, uh, it's sort of under attack. The French are gaining on them. There's significant victories for the French at Fort Necessity in 1754, Braddock's defeat in 55. Uh, 56 and 57 at sites further north, the French are having significant success. Uh, and there gets to become a very real sense, I think, uh, they call this the years of defeat in Britain, that their way of life is slipping away from them. So in 1758, uh, a Secretary of State by the name of William Pitt will come to power, and he represents a major policy change uh, in how the British approach this war. Uh, Pitt will look at the Seven Years' War as a whole, again, fighting around the world, and see why they're losing and how. Uh, he'll devise a basically two-pronged strategy for changing it, and it's really an incredible power grab by a Secretary of State. He becomes sort of, uh, I think, the single most powerful low-level policymaker outside of the king in the history of the empire to a degree he does this. But he looks at what the French use as their strengths. They have a number of colonies. Any empire needs them to survive. Uh, and he clearly views that as something that has to be gone. So he'll systematically, he believes, around the world, uh, strip those colonies away from them. And then he'll look to key sites uh, in those colonies uh, that could sort of turn the tide in favor of the British. Uh, Fort Duquesne occupies the point where the Allegheny Monongahela come together to form the Ohio. That's a key site for him. Because the Ohio River affects, effectively connects to the Mississippi. Uh, and if you control the, the mouth of the Ohio, which is Pittsburgh today, uh, you control that whole river at that time, the whole Mississippi River. So that's the sort of background of it. And when Fort Duquesne is captured, uh, and they begin Fort Pitt. Uh, Fort Pitt is part of a much larger British strategy, right, to win this world war. And the British, as far as they're concerned, will use Fort Pitt uh, to expand their empire across the mountains to the Mississippi and beyond. They have no idea that in really less than 15 years, uh, the American colonies will be rebelling and they'll lose that installation. So when Fort Pitt's being built, really 1759 is when it starts. Uh, it's an incredible achievement. I like to call it the most technologically advanced fort in the British world. And people ask me about that because Fort Pitt is almost made exclusively, almost entirely, of local materials. Uh, the steel that's there is the remnants of Fort Duquesne. Uh, they use it local wood, local timber, obviously, uh, local labor, uh, and it's mostly made out of earth. Uh, there's, a, there's a stone and brick wall on the eastern side, uh, but it is effectively part of the landscape. And I think technologically, by today's terms, uh, that's impressive because today technology is not like it used to be. Bigger, complex, sort of Cold War style stuff. Big computers the size of rooms. Uh, the most advanced personal computer we have is an iPad, right? And there's one button on it. 
So the idea of what's technologically advanced is changing. And I think less is more in that regard. And Fort Pitt really fits that mold. Uh, but what you would see in 1759, 1760, 61, and it is finished in 62, uh, is hustle and bustle uh, working uh, all year long. Men are working in the winter, men are working in the spring, because the British have a very real sense of urgency. The Seven Years' War is not over. Uh, that the sooner you finish that fort, the sooner you solidify British hold in this area, and the sooner you win the war. So it's around-the-clock work, and it's a back-breaking, incredible effort. Can you talk a little bit about Fort Duquesne that was here mm -hmm. beforehand? I mean, how big was it? What was the comparison? What was the purpose Certainly. of it? Fort Duquesne and Fort Pitt uh, are really uh, both forts of the same era. So they rely on the same architectural features. Uh, Fort Pitt, for example, has five bastions, right? Those points on the edges, uh, defensive elements. Uh, fort Duquesne has two, but the comparison really stops there. Fort Duquesne is a wooden fort. Uh, it's built very quickly because the French understand, again, the sooner they get the, the fort built, uh, the sooner they uh, can sort of implement their, uh, their policy of control over the region. Now, the difference between the two is this. Fort Duquesne can afford to be small. It can afford to be weak because if it's attacked, the French know uh, the attack will have to come from the English colonies. That's a long march. The men will be tired, if not easily reinforced positions, and the fort can be abandoned. Now, the advantage the French have is that to the north, uh, to what is today Franklin, PA, uh, moving forward to Waterford, PA, all the way to Lake Erie, they've got three smaller forts. So if the French lose that position, that's fine with them because it takes one trip down the Allegheny River to really reinforce the fort again, right, Fort Duquesne again. So not a comparison. Fort Duquesne was very much designed to be a place of Indian diplomacy uh, and, again, just to give the French possession of the forks of the Ohio, what is today Point State Park. But if it was attacked, uh, it was meant to be abandoned. Reinforcement would be easy. So for the British to take it, and they failed once at this because of those reasons, they'd have to build their own line of forts. And in 1758, that's what ultimately allows that to happen. Forts Little, Littleton, Bedford, and Ligonier are built, which gives, from Philadelphia, a direct supply line across southern Pennsylvania for them to keep that. So Fort Pitt was the, the permanent statement that we, the British, are here. Uh, things have changed. We will win this war. Fort Duquesne was very much a way of, I think, strategizing, right, how we can keep this and what we can do while we're here. So Fort Pitt was the western end of the chain of English forts? This is something I really try to hammer home in the book. You're right. It's, it's the western end of the chain, but in the minds of the policymakers in London, remember, this is an empire in Great Britain uh, that sits in West Africa. It sits in India. Uh, this war will go to the Philippines. It sits in Europe. It sits in the Caribbean, uh, Central America. Uh, Fort Pitt, effectively, in their minds, is the westernmost point of their entire empire when it comes to North America. In the western hemisphere, Fort Pitt's the edge. So if that gives you a better sense of how important this fort is in the outcome of, I think, the modern world to a degree, right, from the British perspective, it's incredibly important. This is a major achievement for them. It was a key component of William Pitt's strategy for taking it over. It's why the fort uh, and the town bears his name as a result. Did they have plans to build forts further to the west? Just uh, yeah, that would be happening, and it would happen relatively shortly after. Uh, as early as we can get into the sort of American period, right, when America uh, is beginning sort of uh, in its infancy, and you might get to say the War of 1812, uh, America controls the Northwest Territories, what's today Indiana, Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio. There are British forts on American soil still at that point because the British keep Canada. So the British have an understanding that the frontier is not easily tamed. They know that. They've tried it. They know the Americans can't do it yet. So they are very brazen. They sort of keep their forts there. And what can the Americans do about it, right? It's, it's hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Washington, D.C. to make a decision to stop them. So the British will retain their presence in North America. Again, to this day, Canada still exists, but they will use it throughout 
uh, American history, and that's just an element of it. Uh, it will be there eventually, though. What is Mercer's Fort? Mercer's Fort, and this sort of shows how urgent Fort Pitt was, is the immediate temporary fort after the fall of Fort Duquesne, and the French abandoned that in 1758. They know they can't take on this British force coming at them. Mercer's Fort is sort of designed to be a placeholder, very much like Fort Duquesne was. Uh, it's even designed, in fact, to easily be abandoned until Fort Pitt can take hold. And that's where I begin this book with Hugh Mercer because Hugh Mercer is a very interesting guy. He will remain a part of the American story till the American Revolution. He dies, uh, but he's born in Scotland and he comes here. Uh, and at the time of the Seven Years' War, he's proud to be a member of the British Empire. And after the Seven Years' War, uh, he fights for the Patriot cause. So it sort of underlays the fabric, I think, of American life, uh, that here's a Scotsman fighting for uh, this sense of American freedom. Uh, the Revolutionary Era is much more complex than we think. But Mercer's Fort is a small fort built along the Monongahela River. Uh, again, very small garrison. Uh, Mercer comes in with General John Forbes' for force that's meant to take Fort Duquesne. Uh, and he's the only one left. They conquer it. It's a massive engagement. George Washington's there. Henry Bouquet is there. They're celebrating. Then they leave. Okay, this is a, a, a key strategic point, right, in this world war. And they say to Hugh Mercer, uh, we're leaving you with a few hundred men and we're leaving. So if it fails, it's your fault, right? It's, it's pretty amazing. But Mercer, again, I think learns as he goes, which is sort of a theme throughout this book. He builds Mercer's tiny fort. But once ground is broken on Fort Pitt, um, it becomes obsolete and it becomes really absorbed into the fort itself because it's valuable materials. But it's sort of a miniature, I think, to a degree, Fort Duquesne. Very temporary, just to hold the place. And it was clear the French at that point uh, probably weren't coming back once Fort Pitt was built. Mercer actually talks about that. When his little fort is there, uh, he fears French forces coming down the Allegheny any day. Um, so it's a, it's a frightening time. You say in your book that it was General Forbes who came up with the name Pittsburgh? Right. Uh, John Forbes is a Scotsman. Uh, William Pitt, Secretary of State, William Pitt assigns John Forbes for this. Part of Pitt's strategy to win this war around the world uh, is enough with the provincial officers, right? Americans uh, leading this war. Let's put the best that the British Empire has to offer. So they send John Forbes. Uh, and he will effectively cut a road from Philadelphia, uh, really out of Carlisle because that's where the, the line sort of stops, to, uh, for, to Pittsburgh at the time, what is today Pittsburgh, Fort Duquesne. Uh, and it's called, in his mind, a line of communication. The more forts he builds, it takes long, it's very slow, but it's a permanent road. So Fort Pitt, or what will be Fort Pitt, can be reinforced. It's still Fort Duquesne at the time. John Forbes will stop at Fort uh, Bedford. He, he's terribly ill, he's dying of cancer. Uh, he's not aware of that, but he knows that he's ill. Uh, and Henry Bouquet, uh, one of his sort of lower officers, will take an attachment uh, all the way to Fort Duquesne, find it abandoned, and they will claim the area for Great Britain. But John Forbes is a key component, but it's called the Forbes Campaign for that reason. Uh, Pittsburgh is named after uh, William Pitt because of that. William Pitt devised this strategy. Pitt was the Secretary of State yes. at the time. He was not Prime Minister. He wasn't right. the boss. Secretary of State. He was, it's an unprecedented power grab. He takes over everything. And the fact is, the British have been losing for, for the last three years. So they're happy to see it, right? It's an experiment, and it's working. That's the key. So he's not even prime minister. Uh, but John Forbes will name uh, the area, of course, Fort Pitt, but he'll name it larger as far as the village that will be there, uh, Pittsboro. Uh, remember, he's a Scotsman, right? So he's naming it after uh, the Scottish capital, uh, Edinburgh. But it's spelled Edinburgh. Uh, we've sort of anglicized Edinburgh into, Edi into or I should say, Pittsboro into Pittsburgh today. But again, as a Scotsman, he would have named this area Pittsboro. 
uh, in honor of the Prime Minister or the, uh, the Secretary of State, who, by the way, never saw this area. He never left England to come here. So, how long did it take to build the fort? Fort Pitt was again conceptualized in '58. Ground was broken in '59, '60, '61, '62 in this area. Uh, it's just constant work to build it. So it's really effectively sort of finished in 62. Uh, and you have a lot of different people who are coming in and again, sort of the chapter headings allude to that, uh, to oversee it. And these are uh, well-to-do uh, British uh, experienced officers, uh, men like John Stanwix, uh, who's been a lifer, so to speak, not really an aristocratic man, uh, but one who, a man who's committed uh, to the British cause. And then a man like Robert Monckton, who's a member of uh, so, sort of the martial aristocracy, right? He's an aristocrat. Uh, he's born into uh, prosperity. He's born into the British peerage system. He'll be a lord someday, right? But he's serving his time in the military. He's, he's highly effective in Canada, particularly. Uh, he's injured, right, uh, when the uh, British effectively crush the French finally uh, in, in Canada. And then to recover, he sort of comes here as his recovery mission. Uh, even though he took a bullet almost through his heart. And he sees the finishing of Fort Pitt. And he has a lot to do with not so much the building of Fort Pitt, because the ground is broken, it's laid, the framework, the foundations there. Uh, he sort of sets a new tone in terms of attitude at Fort Pitt, how the people of the area will look, uh, how Indians will engage in this area. Robert Monckton is often overlooked. Uh, almost everyone in this book has some local tie as far as a name. Uh, Stanwick Street, right, in Pittsburgh, downtown. Mercer County is there. Uh, Moncton, though, he's sort of left out, and it's incredible because he is a, uh, I think you could say the equivalent of a military superstar in the British Empire. Uh, so it's a fascinating story, it really is. Well, what was the next fort to the, to the east from Fort Pitt? If you would leave Fort Pitt once it's built, again, the lifeblood of Fort Pitt are the supplies coming out of Philadelphia. The last fort there is Fort Ligonier. Fort Ligonier, uh, it's not as big as Fort Pitt, it's in something of a dangerous territory, not nearly as dangerous as Fort Pitt, but a lot of the decisions as far as reinforcements and supplies uh, absolutely have to come from there. It's the only place they can come from uh, before they get to Fort Pitt. So if there was ever a cutoff, right, that road was blocked, Fort Pitt would, uh, would be effectively besieged. They'd be helpless. So it's, it's crucial that those three forts out of Philadelphia right, uh, to Pittsburgh stay open. That road has to be clear. Were they ever self-sufficient? I mean, did they, did they get fish out of the river, or did they grow things, grow food here? Uh, obviously, being the frontier, uh, you attract, I think, and, and this goes throughout American history as well, the frontier attracts a certain type of, of clientele. Uh, self-sufficient, maybe they don't trust the government, maybe they don't need to be taken care of, uh, and really, effectively, the, the government stops in, in Carlisle, and it really sits in, in Philadelphia. So if you're that sort of... Uh, renegade type of person. This is the edge of the world for you. It doesn't get any better than this. You can be here and be safe, but still be uh, away from everything. So there was fishing. You have three rivers here to deal with. You have a number of streams shooting off of them. And it's those trappers and hunters um, that really sort of map out a lot of those extra streams. They deal with the Indians in a very, uh, in a very provocative way, I think, as far as understanding American history. So the frontiersmen adds as much to this story and to the fabric of this country as, as Fort Pitt as a building ever did. What were relations with the Indians like? Indian relations were, uh, were crucial in this period. And I think you have to have a bigger context of the Seven Years' War in general to get that. Uh, as historians, we, we deal with this a lot because it's one of the final frontiers as far as studying this. For most of history, uh, whenever the Seven Years' War was talked about, it was looked at like a game of chess. You have the British on one side, the French on the other, 
North America's the chessboard, the Indians are the pawns. Uh, and that changes about 30 years ago because we begin looking at the sources differently. And what we find is that, and these are men like uh, Colin Calloway, historian, Fred Anderson, David Dixon of Slippery Rock University, that these Indians really uh, are not a, an auxiliary unit here. I mean, this is not the British and French and to a lesser degree the Indians. Uh, this is very much uh, a world where these three groups interact on a regular basis uh, and really contribute in a major way to each other's cause. Uh, I sort of consider myself in the third leg of that, right, the day I learned about French intentions and British intentions is the day I learned about Indian intentions. So I have the benefit of using that path that those men blazed, right, uh, to sort of open that up more. So we're learning every day the complexity and the richness of Indian life. Uh, but Indian life and interacting with Indians is absolutely crucial in this area. You, you cannot be successful without it. And the British and French learned that. And in many, many ways it ties directly to uh, the emergence of the American Revolution, the fact that uh, understanding that relationship and keeping that balance was important. What did it take to have good relations with the Indians? Uh, Fred Anderson uh, is, is probably the most accomplished uh, historian in this field. He's published a book, Crucible of War. It's like 800 pages. Been deals. on this program for that book. Oh, he has, absolutely. Yeah. So you know what you're getting into with Anderson. He put forward a very interesting hypothesis that is just crucial to understanding Indian relations. Uh, he says that uh, the natural balance of things, the order of things for Europeans, and to this day this is still true, we're still part of this world, is war and peace as the natural alternative. Uh, but for Indians, it's different. He calls it war and trade. And that's an interesting hypothesis when you consider it. But for the Indian, uh, if you have good relations with anyone, whether it be another tribe, whether it be another empire, the English or French, uh, you'll be constantly trading. It's a very physical diplomacy. But if trade stops, right, then something must be awry because it's the natural order of things. So when trading ends, say the British ended after the Seven Years' War, uh, in the Indian mindset, uh, something must be wrong, the natural order is unbalanced, war must be the result. So that is uh, key to interacting with Indians. It's, it's very physical. Uh, they don't sign documents on paper. They do, but they don't understand why. Again, written language is not a component of their culture. Uh, there are men like, say, Gaia Sutta, right? He's a, he's a Mingo chief, uh, and he plays a large role in this time period. Uh, he, he talks about, you know, he says sort of signing documents, so on and so forth, but it doesn't register with him. Uh, he's a man that speaks probably upwards of, of 20 languages. He's not, he's not uh, unintelligent by any means. Written language isn't a component. So it's physical. You hand over gifts. Uh, when you want to make a bond or alliance, you hand over a string of wampum shells. Right? That's something they can see, something they can touch. A name on paper means nothing to them. So again, it's, it's, it's a diplomacy that is very different for the, for the Europeans when they arrive. And they really have to sort of learn to adapt to that if they want to be successful. And, and a strong Indian ally will go very far in this world. What did they trade? Well, when you can sort of, and again, my students sort of have difficult times hearing this, right? The undergraduate mind isn't so focused. But if you ever consider trying to, say, uh, boil water, all right, uh, in a pot made of wood, that's a, that's a big problem. So when they say, how can these, you know, monumental exchanges happen for household goods? Uh, steel is incredibly impressive and incredibly necessary. Try to take steel out of your life. It's almost impossible. So there would be the biggest things. Uh, firearms, definitely. Right, we have the, in, the image of the Indian hunting with bow and arrow, that sort of thing. When Europeans arrive with, with firearms, that's gone, effectively. Uh, there's no reason. It's a much better way of life uh, because shooting food is much easier. So firearms are a big one. Uh, alcohol is another huge one. Uh, and unfortunately for the Indians, the Europeans find that in many cases, uh, the Indians will, will take that alcohol 
that's much less valuable than they think because of their utter addiction to it. So it's again physical and in exchange the Europeans will get fine furs, uh, furs that back home in England and in France will be transformed into hats, will be transformed into coats. Uh, fur they need they don't have in Europe. So it's, it's a way that the empire, if you're picturing this from the British perspective, uh, it's a way that the empire can sustain itself. These are foreign goods, right? The British empire needs them back home. Uh, but that's the beauty of empire. You have all of this land, right? And, and it can all be yours. So Indian trade is, is crucial, not just in war, but in peace as well. At the, so while they were building the fort or when the fort was completed, there were civilians living here and not just soldiers? Yes. Uh, the soldiers would sometimes, if they were provincials, Americans, right, born in the colonies, bring their families. But more often than not, again, these are speculators. When you hear that new lands are opened, you know the fortune that can be made trading with Indians. Again, a beaver pelt is one of the most valuable pelts in the New World. Beaver fur has small barbs on it, they attach together, that makes a perfect top hat back in London, right? They know the money that can be made. So as soon as the West opens up, so to speak, and Americans do it much farther west later, they're there, they're coming. It's rugged, it's difficult, uh, but Pittsburgh remains a small village, completely sustaining itself off of Fort Pitt's garrison they keep there, uh, of these traders. And it's with these people that the Indians engage on a regular basis. And for the British, the more people you can have move out here, the better. Because even though they're not maybe, uh, maybe not military, right, not officials of the British Empire, they're spreading your way of life. And that's, that's crucial. So there actually was a town here then? Yeah. Uh, shortly after the establishment of Fort Pitt. And again, it really starts with the workers. The workers need somewhere to sleep. They can't make that ride back to Philadelphia. They built cabins. They built sheds. It's all very concentrated, even by 1761, uh, on what we would consider the point today. Um, there are maps. We have an understanding of it. Very, very well-written documents. But it is a little auxiliary village off of uh, Fort Pitt. But they li all lived outside of the fort's yes, walls. Yes, yes. Uh, if there would be trouble, if there would be invasion or attack, they'd go into the fort, they understood that. Uh, but it was still relatively relatively brief. There was no real permanent uh, buildings, right? You're not seeing massive stone buildings because you're on the edge of civilization. This could all be gone in a second is the idea, right? With, with some attack maybe coming from the French, maybe coming from the Spanish, possibly from the Indians. It could all be gone. So they built very temporary shelters, but it sort of grows as a temporary town until, until permanence finds it. Can you take us for a walk through Fort Pitt? Like on the day it's completed and they cut the ribbon and they say, you know, we dedicate this as Fort Pitt and walk in the front door, what would you have seen? Sure. I think Fort Pitt is, is an incredible architectural achievement. You consider it's made of the earth itself, right? So it's all very self-sustaining. Uh, but it uses the natural topography. So around the fort you have a moat, but it's really a trench most of the year. Now, if you're in Pittsburgh and say spring, you know Point State Park floods. It always does. Some people park, right, and their cars are filled with water. It's the same then. So this trench actually connects directly with the Allegheny River. When that water rises, they get a moat. It's actually pretty brilliant. Uh, around the fort, for the most part, there's no uh, sort of harder surface as far as uh, walls or, or rock. It's made of earth. But on the eastern side, the side that faces land, right, the side the city of Pittsburgh is on now, you had a massive stone wall. Because again, this is a fort built with the intention, perhaps, of defending itself against a modern European army. Maybe the French, possibly the Spanish. If they're going to attack, it's going to be by land. That's the only side that needs to be reinforced. Uh, the walls are approximately uh, 15 feet tall. Uh, when you're standing on top of those walls, you have almost 20 feet of grass. The walls of Fort Pitt are actually laid with sod so they can grow in and reinforce it. Uh, when you go inside, it's a pentagon shape, so you see a series of buildings inside uh, with sort of an open center. Uh, this is very much, I think, a descendant of the European castle in that regard. 
but these are garrisons for the fort. And again, the people in the fort inside, generally speaking, and the way you get in is from sort of a drop gate that goes over that Allegheny flooding. Uh, these aren't the civilians. Uh, this is day-to-day -day life of a garrison. There's kitchens, there's a prison. Uh, it's a modern fort in that regard. It's, again, designed to take Great Britain into the great unknown of the American West. They have no idea they're going to lose it. But outside of Fort Pitt, things get a little bit different. Uh, you've got uh, very simple cabins. You've got Indians in the village every day of all different tribes. Uh, you've got traders dealing in all sort of unscrupulous activity. There's a church. Uh, from what we understand, uh, they're reading from a Presbyterian manual, even though they're sort of a, a Unitarian congregation, different faiths altogether coming there, all, all, all Protestant, of course. Um, but that's the world you see. Uh, it's a dirty place. It's a filthy, muddy, disgusting place. Uh, these people are leaving their sort of their waste products in the river. Uh, the colonial America is not a place you'd want to visit. You talk a little bit about how the smell and, would have yes, been. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I try to really get that across because uh, we have this image of, you know, it's very uppity and very, uh, you know, sort of Williamsburgish, right? But it's a filthy place. Uh, there's no sense of dental hygiene. Uh, almost everyone is covered in some sort of body lice because of the bathing, especially here at Pittsburgh. It's a, it's a nasty place. It really is. It's a tough way of life. Um, and you factor in, uh, again, the sort of atmosphere you have here. It's a pretty temperate region. Hot summers, cold winters. Well, magnify that, right? In the hot summer, uh, you, may, uh, you may have not sort of many problems. But when it gets to be winter, right, you don't have heating. Uh, it's very cold. Your food is running low, so it's a desperate time in many cases. Winter at Fort Pitt is always the most desperate times on a regular basis of the year. But I think it gives you a sense of it. There are some children, um, both Indian uh, and white children. Uh, if a trader's here without his wife, if his wife's back in Philadelphia or maybe some other uh, continental city or coastal city, uh, they may have an Indian wife. Right? It's something that we have a lot of information on. Alcoholism is a problem. Uh, there are stories of giant barrels of whiskey and rum being put in the middle of the town and the cork knocked out and it's, it's a party for the rest of the day. And of course you have fights and things like that. Um, it's, it's very much a, a, a town on the edge of civilization, right? Lawlessness tends to win the day in a place like Pittsburgh. Did the soldiers have any mission here other than just hang out here? Well, you have to remember 1761, the Seven Years' War is still going on. It doesn't end until 1763. Uh, so they don't know what tomorrow looks like any more than we know what tomorrow looks like. They believe they could be uh, sent to some foreign area to fight. They believe they could be marched into Canada. Uh, when it seems like the French effort in North America winds down, things begin to settle in. And this is like any military base then, Fort Pitt. It just keeps a presence. Largely Indian delegations will meet here. Uh, there's, there's really no sense of a pending French attack after 1762 or 1763. Uh, so things begin to settle into the daily life. I think you'd see at any, any military base in peacetime. When was the Pontiac War? Pontiac's Rebellion is, is, uh, is again, one of the key components of this book. I actually give it two chapters uh, because we desperately need scholarship in this regard. Uh, but to understand Pontiac's War, you have to understand the end of the Seven Years' War, and that'll give you a much better sense of the American Revolution. Right? So here's what we sort of have to deal with. Uh, the end of the Seven Years' War, Great Britain, Great Britain and France and their allies uh, signed the Treaty of Paris, 1763. And the Treaty of Paris will effectively give Britain all of North America. And when Britain all said and done, victorious in the war, right, uh, they sort of look at where they are and they look at their national debt and it has skyrocketed. Debt before the Seven Years' War was about 74.4 million British pounds. After, it's about 122 million British pounds. So it didn't double, uh, but it's extensive. And policymakers in London look to this and they say, how can we pay this off? Well, they say most of the fighting was in North America. 
uh, they should have to pony up and pay the rest of it. That's the idea. So they turn to a strategy, uh, and this may sound familiar uh, to those who follow politics today, uh, of revenue increases, raising taxes, uh, and austerity, uh, cutting spending, cutting entitlements. And they impose all of that right, on North America. So from the American perspective, uh, we've just won a major war. We're all British. That's the idea of the people at the time. Uh, people like Benjamin Rush of Philadelphia. He'll actually go to London. He'll sit in King George's throne. He'll write and gush over how magical it was, right? He's at the pinnacle of all man's wants and dreams uh, in the British Empire. And they're expecting that their life is going to get measurably better. They're effectively alone on the continent now. The French are gone. Uh, the British way of life has proven itself to be successful as they knew. What they get from the British in exchange, again, raising of taxes, cutting of spending. They can't figure it out. And a lot of ill will, anger, frustration, and rage uh, really is directed on the home country and on London, on England from this. And they feel like they've been slighted. And I think that the seeds of the American Revolution are there. But the Pontiac's Rebellion, uh, part of the spending that they cut, as we mentioned earlier, trade was a regular thing uh, with these two empires fighting in this area. The spending they cut is goods and trades to the Indians. They did it because the French were doing it and you weren't going to have an Indian ally unless you were trading. When the French are gone, they figure, why bother doing this? So they cut that. That's the, that's the spending cut. And the Indians will rebel as a result. In their mindset, um, that has become, over the last 50 years, really, part of their economy. How can they live without British goods? How can they not have uh, metal? How can they not have guns? They can't, they can't just not live with that, right? So they rise up and they rebel. You can call it uh, the most violent, bloody protest, right? Uh, in the history of British North America, perhaps. Uh, but that's Pontiac's Rebellion. Again, the British aren't thinking of the Indians. They're thinking this is unnecessary spending. When that uprising occurs, the Indian economy will tank. Villages uh, will, will lose many of their warriors as a result of that because these people can't feed themselves. They need those weapons to hunt. They need those supplies. So they rise up. It becomes a war of, I think initially, uh, it's, there's very practical economic circumstances at work here, but it becomes a war of religion. Right? There's a Delaware prophet, a member of the Lenny Lenape tribe, Neolin. And Neolin will claim to have a vision from the master of life, that all the whites can be expelled from North America. And when you have a person like Pontiac come along, right? He's a young man, he's not one of these old soothsaying priests, and a man like, a man like Gaia Sutta, more in this area of western Pennsylvania, they come along and they put teeth to Neolin's argument. We've heard the ideology of expelling the white man, let's do it. That turns into a massive Indian uprising. It's a direct result of the end of the Seven Years' War. You can never understand it without understanding that war. Why is it called Pontiac's Rebellion? Traditionally, it's called Pontiac's Rebellion. Pontiac is the leader of this movement in the Great Lakes. And there are British forts in the Great Lakes at that time. What tribe was he with? Uh, Pontiac was in Miami. Miami? Yeah. So he's, he's there. And he has particular sway over a lot of people. Again, he's, he's willing to say, our life has turned uh, pretty desperate. We can fight for it. The British have, fort, have built Fort Michilimackinac on the Great Lakes. They built Fort Detroit. They've taken it really from the French. Uh, and Pontiac will and his men attack those forts. But in this area, right, there's one prime target, and it's Fort Pitt. Pontiac's never in this area. Right? Some say he's here in 1755 at Braddock's defeat, but the man who leads this show, the man who carries out uh, this sort of ideological practice, and it is in some cases terrorism, uh, is Gaia Suta, uh, who's a Mingo of the Mingo tribe. So there is a very real sense that if you're an Indian, you take the forts, Right? Everyone else will leave. And as a result, you see Fort Presque Isle burned to the ground. Uh, you see Fort, uh, what was Fort Le Bouff, right? burned to the ground. Uh, Fort Venango, just north, Franklin, Pennsylvania, burned to the ground. And they're all going after Fort Pitt. You tell a story in here about Fort Venango where the uh, 
Indians came up to the fort and said, want to come out and play lacrosse? Sure. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it underscores in a real way. You would read that if you don't have any background on this and say, why would they listen? Why would they think that trap is feasible? But you have to understand how the Indians and the French and the English, the second they begin to interact, and when you study culture, you see this, they always infinitely change each other's culture dramatically and equally. So there's many stories, even there at Franklin, uh, of the men in the garrison completely and entirely bored in this very alien world with no one around them. They really exist as an auxiliary to Fort Pitt, which is several miles in the south, and they have good relations with the Indians, so they play lacrosse. Right? They clown around. They do those things to kill time. Go to a military base. You'll see people you know, flag football, whiffle ball, these things all the time. Uh, this is part of the plan for the Indians. They think if you eliminate the forts, there's no protection for the people. They know the people of Pittsburgh, who are civilians, rely on Fort Pitt entirely for their lives. If there's no Fort Pitt, there's no Pittsburgh, and they're right. So when they burn those forts and they slaughter those people, and they roast, they literally roast over fire the commandants of those forts, uh, they're making sure our way of life will prevail over yours. Just as the British and French battled their ways of life, their viewpoints, that was very much the Indian viewpoint against the British. And it directly comes from the end of the Seven Years' War. So what happened at Fort Pitt? Fort Pitt was placed uh, under siege, right? So they're completely surrounded. And when you surround yourself naturally with three rivers, it's very easy to do, and the Indians recognize that. Uh, and they know that if Fort Pitt's not connected to Fort Ligonier, if that road is not open, right, supplies don't come in. So what effectively happens, uh, it begins at the end of May, by all accounts, and it will go till August. Uh, the Indians will surround it. Now, the rivers today are much wider than they were, uh, but they would go on the opposite shores. They'd fire in. They'd, show, they'd throw fire arrows. It's terrorism. They would terrorize the people of Pittsburgh at night. All of the people, the women, the children, the soldiers, were in that fort, and they were trapped, and they were surrounded all summer. And it turns into this very, I think, uh, sort of exciting narrative, right? It's sort of an adventure. Who can relieve the fort of the, the siege of Fort Pitt? They had enough food to feed everybody for uh, the summer? Not hardly. There were, there's gardens outside the fort, and there's cattle outside the fort, and the Indians knew. Uh, there are cows, right? There are sheep. Uh, there are chickens. Kill them. Those people can't eat. A siege is about restricting your enemies. Walls are a wonderful thing, right, when they keep people out. But they can just as easily keep you in, and that's what happens at Fort Pitt. The people are desperate, terribly desperate. Uh, conditions are horrifying. Imagine all of the filth related to colonial America outside spread out in Pittsburgh crammed into that one fort. So they all stayed inside the fort? The men, the women, the to leave that fort was to die. And there are stories. We have wonderful notes from what it's like being in that fort. Men would go out to maybe find a carcass of a goat, maybe to pick whatever vegetables are left that weren't destroyed. And the Indians would intentionally wait until he gathered it all, and they'd shoot them. Right? They want to do it in plain view of everyone because it's, it's meant to instill fear. It's meant to show you that you can't be here. We won't let you be here. And it nearly works. Desperation really sweeps them out of the fort that summer. How long were they under siege? Uh, it was uh, the end of May to uh, August, second week of August. So uh, it's a significant amount of time with, remember, no supplies coming in at all whatsoever uh, in desperate times. Was there any communication going back and forth? Could they get messengers in and out? I think this illustrates how we're beginning to understand the complexity of Indian life. Uh, Indian life is not monolithic. Many tribes, uh, many conflicts, many alliances, many different peoples working together. And there were some groups that were friendly to the British. They were relying on them. There's others, obviously not so much. But many of the messages that would go back would be between, say, a British interpreter and an Indian. He would run a letter right, to uh, some distant post. Now, there's nothing to the north. Fort Ligonier was still intact. So the, the chain was, uh, was, was together. Uh, but that's where the communication really tends to come from. And then it would go onward to Philadelphia. That's what leads to... Uh, in that summer, the relief of Fort Pitt. Uh, Colonel Henry Bouquet uh, will lead a force of men, OK, 
across that road Forbes had built right, five years earlier uh, to relieve Fort Pitt. Who was Henry Bouquet? Because his name keeps popping up. He's, he's uh, I think he's the Iron Man of the region. You know, they call, uh, they call John Forbes, the Indians call John Forbes Iron Head. And I say Henry Bouquet is the real man of steel regarding this region because of what he does. Uh, he's a Swiss mercenary, so he's born in Switzerland. He fights for the highest dollar. Uh, he founded the British Pay Well. So he spends his career, even though he's fought all over Europe for all kinds of different reasons, recently now, in 1763, fighting for the British. And he is a nose-to-the-grindstone, uh, all-business sort of guy. He's willing to do things other people aren't, but again, he's being paid for it. Uh, he speaks French, uh, but he learns English. French is his native language, right? He's Swiss. Uh, so the British know Henry Bouquet is a man that will get things done. He can lead British forces, even though he himself is British. Uh, he's very much one of these uh, sort of uh, uh, self-sufficient frontier sort of fighters. He's, he's again, born in Europe, but he takes the frontier very well because he has a very, I think, I think savage mentality when it comes to war. But Bouquet is there when Fort Duquesne falls. Uh, Bouquet will uh, be the commandant of Fort Pitt in 1763. He actually goes back to Philadelphia before Pontiac's Rebellion because he believes things will be safe. He leaves his number two, who's also a Swiss mercenary, Simone Nacouillet, in charge of Fort Pitt. And when he leaves, the siege begins. The Indians know who Henry Bouquet is. Everyone knows who Henry Bouquet is. It's only a sort of proper that he would be the one that leads the forces out of Philadelphia back to Pittsburgh to relieve uh, the siege. And it's not easy, uh, but it does happen. And is the one big battle, the Battle of Bushy Run? Battle of Bushy Run uh, is, is really, again, almost lost to American history in many cases, but it's crucial to understanding the period. This sort of sets the stage for it. Bouquet's marching across southern Pennsylvania, very mountainous, very difficult. He leaves Fort Ligonier with a group of men and a train of supplies. Now, from Fort Ligonier to Pittsburgh, it's quite a march. Okay, So they cut that in half uh, by building sort of a small semi-fort uh, more of a stopover at, at Bushy Run, which is a creek. The men can drink, the men can rest. They call it Bushy Run Station. Well, as Bouquet's approaching that area, the people in Pittsburgh, right, because they don't know that he's coming just yet. They don't know where he is. They write that the Indian fighting has seemed to have subsided. They see the warriors running away. Where are they going? This is an orchestrated attack by the Indians. They know Bouquet's coming, and they're going to meet him at the halfway point. And they do. Bouquet doesn't know it. Uh, the battle occurs at Bushy Run. It lasts two days. It's ferocious fighting. What the Indians don't know uh, is that the people Bouquet has with him uh, are uh, the Scottish uh, fighters, right, the Highland Brigades. And these are nasty tribal people, and they're willing to break the rules, just like the Indians are. Uh, the Battle of Bushy Run does turn out to be a victory, uh, and it's the most complete, if not the only, British victory over an Indian force in the history of British American history. You mentioned earlier that your students... Mm -hmm. I guess that means you teach? Yes. Where do you teach? I teach at Robert Morris University. What do you teach? Uh, generally colonial American history. Uh, technically, I am a historian of empire, so I can dabble in, in sort of other fields. I study why empires rise, why they fall. They all fall. The question is why. Uh, this is a wonderful opportunity for me as far as working in this area uh, when you can study two massive empires, the two most modern empires in the history of the world at that point, colliding in warfare. Right? And whenever you can connect that to the area where you're born and raised, right, you can actually sort of have uh, quite a privilege to do it. Um, and it, it has been. To think that these two empires really in a lot of ways rode on, uh, on this small patch of land that today is Pittsburgh is incredible. Uh, but again, studying, studying various empires has given me the opportunity and I've, I've made, a, I think, a very comfortable niche for myself in this field. 
And you mentioned that you have, this is your second book? Yes. What was your first one? Uh, the first book is a, a, a basic narrative retelling of George Washington's very first mission as a 21-year-old man uh, to Fort Le Boeuf. Um, every, every Washington biography, and it's the last thing we need is another Washington biography, talks about this. But they do it in 10 pages. The most I've ever seen is 30. Uh, there's never been a whole book dedicated to it. Now, there's not that much information, so it is a, it is a relatively uh, brief analysis of it, but it's the most complete that was ever been written. Um, it's a story I knew well. It's a story that makes it easy to fall in love with the history of this area, but it's not one most people knew. So it was as much about awareness as anything else, but it was very much like this, a massive hole in the scholarship that needed to be done. Uh, so I was, I was happy to do it. For people who don't know, what was his mission? Washington, this goes back to the origins of the Seven Years' War, 1753. Uh, the British and French are competing over what is today Western Pennsylvania, East Ohio. Collectively, because uh, it's sort of an amalgamous area, they call it the Ohio country. Both sides believe they have a claim to it. Both sides believe the other's claim is completely Ill illegitimate. Uh, so what the French will do in 1753 is say, enough of this, we're going to begin building forts in this area. It's going to make it ours, and we're going to be done with it. Fort Presque Isle, that becomes Erie, PA today. Fort Le Bouffe, what becomes uh, uh, Waterford, Pennsylvania today. And in 1754, later after Washington, they'll build Fort, uh, Fort Michaud at Venango, and then ultimately Fort Duquesne. So when they begin building these forts, uh, the king, right, Great Britain, uh, sends a message to the lieutenant governor of Virginia, the biggest, most powerful colony, and says, do something about this. Use force if you have to. Now, the lieutenant governor at the time is a man named Robert Dinwiddie. And Dinwiddie's in an interesting position because he uh, obviously have his, he has his obligation to Virginia, but he also has his obligation to his financial investments. And one of these is called the Ohio Company of Virginia. And they want to speculate that land. So while he's deciding uh, how he'll deal with this, right, it's decided that he will send a letter to the commandant of the southernmost fort, which is Fort LeBeau, saying politely leave, this is British territory, uh, there will be you know, you know, problems if you don't. Uh, and he sort of wonders who he can send to do this. Now at that same time, when he's making that decision, he thinks back to a letter that he's received uh, from a former associate of his named Augustine Washington, who's died. And it was Augustine Washington's younger brother, who was 21, George. And George really wants to be in the military. He's never fought a day in his life. He's never worn a uniform. But he says, can I have my brother's old post, his commission? He was a major. I'd be happy to do it. So Dinwiddie calls Washington into Williamsburg and says, I'll give you the uniform. I'll give you the title. And I even have a mission for you. And he sends Washington to be the one that delivered the letter to Fort LeBoeuf. And Washington really believes. I mean, as a 21-year-old, he believes that this is the be-all, end-all of empire. This is as big as the king himself, right, approaching the king of France. It's not. Uh, Dinwiddie writes that he, he's a glorified mail carrier. He's a, he's a delivery boy. He can't screw this up. Uh, and he almost dies several times, as a matter of fact. He almost dies twice. It's a wonderful story. But it's the first time Washington ever put on a uniform, ever did anything in that regard. Again, he nearly loses his life twice. It's all taking place in western Pennsylvania. And as for the case of most of us, when we uh, utterly fail at something, he gets a promotion when he's done. So uh, that's, it's an interesting story, but it does begin the, the Washington story, as we know. Now, uh, there's a lot to talk about, and we won't get time to talk about all of it, but I want to ask you about the, the, the Pennsylvania versus Virginia yes. border squabble over this area. We're, uh, just so, so people know, we are recording this on the point at Pittsburgh mm -hmm. in the Post-Gazette building, which is right where it all happened. What, what was the border squabble? We have, we have the issue to deal with, and again, when we think of the revolutionary period, we think of the 13 colonies, uh, we know the story. It's almost inevitable, but the fact of the matter is, uh, it's a much more complicated story. Every colony uh, is the result of an investment, 
right? Colonies are great to spread king and country, right? To expand your empire. But a colony is only valuable to the metropole, right? To London, if it makes money. So Virginia is this huge money-making venture for the English. Uh, Pennsylvania is founded, obviously, for different reasons. Uh, uh, religious uh, freedom, right? A little more sense of fairness. It's turned into maybe something a little more economic at that point. But it only goes as far as the Allegheny Mountains. Uh, that chain really divides a lot of the colonies. And everything else is called the back country. And that's everything that the Mississippi. And no one really is sure of what's beyond it. So as far as Virginia is concerned, uh, Pittsburgh has access to the very profitable Ohio River because, again, that gives you control of the Mississippi. Uh, they sent George Washington. They paid, believe it or not, for most of the fighting of the Seven Years' War in that area. The Virginians believe we invested the money in this area. Uh, it should be ours. Fort Pitt, big massive fort, right, important. Everybody wants it. So the Virginians will say it belongs to us. Did no. they have any grant from the king that said that they had a right to this? The Virginia, the Virginia land grant technically reads, uh, everything is yours from sea to sea. Now, you can interpret that pretty loosely, right? And they do. They say, well, this is clearly ours. Uh, Pennsylvania will have a sort of lesser claim to it. Their claim is more that most of the people moving there are their settlers in their minds. Uh, really, it's, it's about 60-40 Pennsylvania to Virginia. There's even some Marylanders living there. But it's one of the things we don't really touch on a lot in U.S. history is that a lot of these colonies, and when, even when they become states, uh, will be fighting over who controls what in the Susquehanna River Valley. Right? Connecticut claims a lot of that territory. So, well, this is ours. People are killing each other. Pennsylvanians and, and, and sort of Connecticut Yankees. And this happens throughout the colonies. But that was the situation there. Were there roads from Virginia up to Pittsburgh, like the Forbes Road? Yes. From, uh, from in 1755, before Fort Pitt, Braddock, uh, General Robert Braddock, was trying to take Fort Duquesne. He carved out something of a road uh, that effectively went from the wilds of Virginia to, uh, to Pittsburgh. So that had grown quite tremendously. And again, when things begin to calm down after the French leave, uh, it begins to grow more. Pontiac's Rebellion begins, you have a massive refugee crisis. Civilians just can't live there, it's not safe. So development kind of stalls at that point. But if you're not right around Pittsburgh, uh, it, it may be suicide to live anywhere else. I, I have to ask you about this thing in your book where you talk about the origin of the word a buck to refer to a mm -hmm. dollar. Sure. Um, Fort Pitt, right, you have a military post. But it's, it's the center of trade in the entire American frontier as far as this area is concerned, particularly the Ohio country. Uh, if you're anyone who's anyone, you're going to be near that fort. If you're an Indian leader, all the major treaties are signed there. You're going to be there. If you want to make money in trade, you have to be there too. Uh, so you begin trading things. And the system they use, and someone wrote this down, they penned it, uh, is that the, again, today is the dollar is the standard. For them, it was the buckskin. So I think something like two dough pelts may equal one buck, right? And that's the trade, you know, four beaver may be a buck, that sort of thing. But it's interesting how that kind of has uh, still existed today, that notion of a dollar being called a buck. A buck was the standard of trade uh, on the American frontier. That's where it comes from. Everything was balanced by that. When the American Revolution came, how, how were sides divided here? I mean, were there, were there loyalists here? And, and Absolutely. Uh, the American Revolution is what, really quelled that Pennsylvania-Virginia border because the disputes between the, the various state legislatures never went away at that point. But there were incidents of actual sort of uh, dispute at Fort Pitt. The Virginians were their own camp, the Pennsylvanians were their camp, and they hated each other. Uh, one would arrest someone, put them in jail, and the other would return. We're going to put them in our jail. We're going to arrest a Virginian if you arrest a Pennsylvania. It was, it was outlandish. It was bloodless for the most part, aside from a few skirmishes, fistfights. Uh, but when the revolution comes, uh, you had a real sense that 
there are bigger fish to fry, I think, at this point. Now, you mentioned loyalists, and that's another group of people uh, that we're really understanding more as we get further from it. We begin looking at that. Uh, many people will call the loyalists Tories. And if you're familiar with the term Tory, that's effectively a British conservative, someone that believes in the peerage system, the aristocracy, uh, sort of the party of the 1%, if you want to use, I guess, today's vernacular to, to, to a degree. Um, but that's what they began calling the, the loyalists in America, Tories. Now, that wasn't the case. These are traders. These are frontiersmen. These are not wealthy people. And we're seeing that as, as we look at the documents, look at the sources, uh, being a Tory didn't make you someone who supported necessarily the aristocratic system over a more fair, more leftist system. Uh, these are people that, if you think from their perspective, uh, their grandparents were British, their great-great-grandparents were British. Uh, this is their system. It's a system that works. The British system gave them land. Right? Look where they live. What they own now is theirs because Britain gave it to them. It's their, it's their way of life. How can you turn your back on that? Uh, if, if Texas was going to secede right, and we were taking sides, but again, you're putting your, today, it's like, can you put your Americanness behind you? And they caught a lot of heat for remaining loyal. But when the uh, revolutionary cause was really sort of fledgling and not doing so well, they weren't looking so bad. Uh, effectively, though, when the American Revolution ends, and this is where we get a lot of the information about them, uh, we see the British Empire offer these people a second chance. They say, you don't have to live in these United States. Uh, we'll give you land somewhere else in, the, in another colony. Uh, we'll give you some money to get started. And we see about 60,000 people leaving the American colonies for land in India and land in South Africa. And these are places that they're happy to go because they view that as them expanding the empire. They can settle there, have a plot of land they'd never have in England. Uh, but the Loyalists as a faction, we're, we're gaining a much better sense of. It was not small, uh, and they were not treated well even after the war. There's incidents in the Susquehanna Valley of Loyalists being decapitated by Americans, right? based on those old fears. Now, it was an anecdotal incident. It was isolated, but it, it's, a real, it's a real anger at the time. Well, if you were around Fort Pitt at the time of the Revolutionary War, would you have known the Revolutionary War was going on? Yeah. Fort Pitt was, and this is maybe uh, something that I really, really wanted to touch on a lot here. Fort Pitt is very much the western half of the American Revolution. Fort Pitt is the base of operations for the American Revolution. And when you study what occurs at Fort Pitt, and particularly the American Revolution in the West, you see it's a very different war. Things like taxation, uh, you know, people like George Washington, uh, and sort of the mythology we build around them, that we sort of give them breaks on some of their failings, doesn't exist here. You have men like Edward Hand. You have men like Daniel Broadhead living here. It's an Indian war, and it's a difficult, dangerous, deadly war. You see the worst of fighting here as far as violence and atrocities. Uh, but it is the western base of the, of the American Revolution. And again, when you take away the sort of breaks that we generally give the, the founders, if you want to say that, uh, you see it was a pretty devastating, devastating place. But it was very much the Western base of, of a two-sided coin, the East and West of the American Revolution. Did the Indians see themselves as allied with the British, or were they doing their own thing? Again, take the Indian perspective. You've been dealing with the British now, right? When the revolution begins 1776, the French have been gone for 13 years. You've been dealing with the British exclusively now right, for all this time. And now you have this other faction. We thought these people were British. Now they're claiming to be something else. They have old alliances. They have old treaties. They honor them with the British. And the British do use them in the war. For the Americans, uh, their hope really is that at best, at best, the Indians could stay neutral because they probably wouldn't come to the American side, at least not all of them. Some do, but not many. 
uh, but at least keep them neutral, keep them out of the war, because we have a very limited chance as it is against the British, yet alone having them there. So uh, you would have known war was here at Fort Pitt. There was a garrison, there were operations. Uh, the Pennsylvania-Virginia camps were still kind of divided at that point, but they were all fighting for the, the same cause. When did Fort Pitt cease to be Fort Pitt? Fort Pitt, well, that's a good question. It happens a few different times. Um, one of the things I do in this book uh, is break down the whole story, obviously into chapters, but in each chapter heading I name it after a different person who was effectively the commandant of the fort. And that works in two ways. One, it's a literary device that helps it make the material, I think, more digestible for everyone. But two, when you see who's managing Fort Pitt, it gives you a new insight into the colonial period, how really diverse it was. You begin with Hugh Mercer, uh, a Scotsman, right? John Stanwix, full-blooded Englishman. Robert Monckton, full-blooded Englishman. Uh, then you have uh, Simone Couillet, right? A Swiss, Henry Bouquet, a Swiss. And then you meet John Murray, uh, fourth Earl of Dunmore. And he was a real uh, sort of component that I really wanted to highlight here because he is the colonial governor of Virginia. He is a landed elite, right? Uh, he's Lord Dunmore back home, so he is here. Uh, he's an egomaniac. Right? He believes that his colony should reign supreme over all of them. He doesn't really fear the American Revolution or any American sort of sentiment because they're British colonies. Uh, he names Fort Pitt Fort Dunmore right, after himself. Um, he has that sort of power, but then he leaves Pittsburgh. Um, so that's when the name changes, when the revolution begins, the Americans take it back and rename it Fort Pitt. But effectively, uh, Fort Pitt really is, is kind of a tragic story for me. As much, as much money goes into it, as much hope that the British will sort of use this as their great bastion, on the frontier. It never meets a French army. It never meets a Spanish army. It has the Indian Rebellion in 1763, uh, but then it never really sort of lives up to its task in a way. It kind of fades into oblivion. Um, and eventually, when you get into the 1790s, very well into the American age, believe it or not, a third of the American army, it's not a big one, but it's something, is at Fort Pitt. They had the people of Pittsburgh actually take apart Fort Pitt, use the stone to build the foundation of the original buildings of Pittsburgh. Is so anything left of it now? Uh, well, there's an outline. If you, go to, if you go to Point State Park, you can see an outline of one of the bastions of Fort Pitt. And when you're standing in it, uh, you don't have a sense of it. But there are several skyscrapers around it. And if you can get the chance, I would say go into it. Look down at the people in there, and you will see the immensity of this fort. It is huge. And again, when you're in it, you don't feel it as much. But when you're looking down, uh, it's an incredibly massive venture. Uh, we had some remnants of the fort uh, up until the 1960s and 70s, uh, and the city decided in some ways to kind of plow it over. So it is what it is. We have the outline. Uh, the meaning of the fort, though, is what's important. It's not necessarily the pile of dirt or earth. That's just a pile of dirt. It's the meaning of the fort. It's the context of the fort that, as a historian, uh, that's, the real, uh, that's the, real, uh, the real meat of the study, I think. Are you working on another book? Uh, I am. I'm working on uh, actually two contracts right now, so nothing's, nothing's signed yet. Um, it will deal with this area, probably more with native, the native way of life, particularly the native view of what's occurring uh, in this area. Well, we'll have to have you back when they're done. I look forward to it. We've been speaking with Brady Kreitzer. He is the author of this book, Fort Pitt, A Frontier History. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. For news, events, and updates, please visit uh, BradyKreitzer.com. I appreciate it. I look forward to it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.